the book of 1 John, chapter 2 today, Live in the Light. And uh, what, a, what an amazing and deep and powerful book the, the, the book of 1 John is. So rich in theology, so rich in practicality, and just real, raw talk from the great Apostle John. We start with this this morning. Digital marketing experts tell us that the average person is exposed to between 6,000 and 10,000 advertisements per day. 6,000 to 10,000 advertisements per day. I can't even process that concept. I really can't. I don't even know really what to think about that. As here at the church, as we've been, one of the things we've been doing is trying to improve our, um, our Google presence. So when people are out there typing up, looking for churches, they'll find the home church. You know, the home church will pop up there uh, quickly. And we've been working with this firm that kind of helps us, and they've uh, been trying to help us narrow in on what we're doing. But I've, what we've discovered along the way in, in talking with them is that you can be incredibly narrow in your advertising to people's interests and what they're about and their age. If you're a 30-year-old woman who has children, enjoys jogging and gardening, we can target you for church advertisement. They know that stuff about you. They know the stuff because of your purchases, because of what you do on social media, because of things you talk about. And they can narrow that in. And there's even, there's a circle. They give us a map and there's a circle that you can say, you know, there's this, you want people in this area or this area or this area. Uh, who do you want to target? People that are on Facebook there, people that are on Google there. They also told us, yeah, they also told us you can do something called geo-targeting. So um, they said, you know, he said, I don't usually recommend this to churches. He said, but, you know, other businesses will do this. If, if, you're, if Target, for example, wants to, uh, wants to market to, to people, but they want to market to people that went to Walmart, and they want to try to steal their business, then what you can do is you geo-target, geographical target. So they, if, you, if your car, if, you're, if your phone went into Walmart, they know you went there, and they'll, the Target will target you because they tracked you. They knew where you went. He says, so, you know, I don't tell churches to do that for to other churches, but, uh, you know, technically <laughs> we could do that. Um, but we would only do that for the Lord, okay? That's only, only for Jesus, you know. Uh, but uh, the point is, the point is there are people that are paid to figure out ways to pull you and to pull me in their direction. Every single day, 6,000 to 10,000 advertisements per day. People trying to pull us in their direction. The point is here, though, the pull from the world is relentless. It's relentless every single day. But it's not just marketing. The world's influence is bombarding us, bombarding everybody. Whether it's the coworkers that you're having conversations with and the things they say, or it's entertainment, the world's entertainment, whether it's our phones, media, even the politicians, the educators, etc., etc., etc. Everywhere you turn, it's the world uh, pulling us in their direction. 
And, and the pull is unending. And it always will be unending until we leave this world. And John, the old apostle, knows that. And it was the same then as it is now. Different form, but it's the same stuff. And he's going to address it directly. And we're going to talk about that today. But first, before he does that, he pauses sort of in this middle of his letter here to write something. He's been already writing. Last week we talked about his, him writing about the marks of a genuine believer. What are those signs that tell us, yes, can give us assurance that we truly do have Jesus living inside of our hearts? These aren't the things that make us a Christian, but they reveal that we truly are a believer. And the two things that he revealed, we talked about last week, are obedience to the commands of God and two, the love for others. If we see those in our life, then we can, we can uh, begin to be assured Jesus resides in me. But he's going to take a break from instructing there, and he's going to go start to encourage for a moment with some very poetic language. And I was thinking about this little letter that this old apostle would have been writing, and he stops here to pause and sort of write something inspiring and encouraging. And I've gotten some of these kind of notes from some people. And, uh, I, and thinking of Mother's Day, I, I think back to the many notes my mother wrote me uh, that were very encouraging and inspiring, very much like this, I'm proud of you. You know, I commend you. Good job. I've seen this in your life. Those kinds of things that are so encouraging. I see Jesus working in you. Always, always lifting Jesus in my heart and mind. And so I think that's what John is doing here. He's going to let them know that, listen, because I'm talking about these marks of a genuine Christian, I'm not doubting your salvation. I, I know you're, you're, you're born again. I know you guys that I'm writing to. I know you love the Lord. I think that's sort of the feel that I get in here. And he also wants to just sort of remind them that everything you have, or everything you need, excuse me, you have in Christ. All we need is in Christ Jesus. And that's sort of the message of encouragement that we're going to see here in this poetic language in these next few verses. So let's look at 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. First, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. For, uh, forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Beautiful. But we need to do a little quick Bible study to understand it. It's actually a very difficult passage to nail down as far as exact interpretation. And when you keep in mind, but when you keep in mind that this is artistic phrasing in Greek, it helps you understand why it's not so cut and dry here. But notice one interesting thing here is that he says a few times, I write unto you. And then he changes in the middle there to I have written unto you. That's, an, that's interesting right there. Perhaps that's a way of him referring to all that he has written and all that he is presently writing and is going to continue to write. He kind of just making a distinction there. In the other section, the other parts of this are even tougher to interpret. I'm going to give you three general interpretations real quick, if you can follow along with this. If he talks about little children, he talks about fathers, and he talks about young men. He kind of uses that, that, uh, those terms. Those three... The, the, 
one interpretation is that these are three levels of maturity in the faith. And this is the most uh, common, the most popular interpretation. There are three levels of maturity. Uh, Little children, young men, and fathers. They just represent our people in different stages of their maturity. Number two is that they're actually, he's speaking of two levels of maturity here in the faith. And when he says little children, he just refers to all Christians, like he has been doing all throughout this letter. He's been saying little children, little children, little children, meaning all believers. So that could be the case also. The third one is that all three phrases refer to all Christians, every single Christian, meaning there is a sense in which all of us are like little children. All of us are like fathers. We have those kind of spiritual aptitudes. And then all, all, all of us are like young men in certain ways. Uh, we're kind of all in those different uh, phases of our faith. Now, I don't think there'd be anything unbiblical about taking any three of those interpretations. Uh, and all of them would probably lead us very close to the same uh, general or wider conclusion. But we're going to look at the most popular interpretation, all right? So let's just take that one in particular and draw some application from that. This is a very interesting and very delightful little, uh, little thing that John says. But let's talk about it in that way. So number one, he says little children. And he says little children twice. He says, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. By little children, let's say that he, by saying that, he, let's say he means young believers, you knew believers. And that, if that's the case, then the emphasis here is on their sins being forgiven. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Uh, there's an emphasis on your sins being forgiven and why those sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And it is important, and we all know this, it is important for a young believer that's new in the faith to focus on the fundamentals of the faith. The fact that I am forgiven, the fact of why I'm forgiven, uh, the, the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses my sin to really have a good understanding of those salvation doctrines. And that sets the fa- godly foundation for, uh, for the rest of our faith. And as I mentioned earlier, I think John also wanted them to know that he's not doubting their salvation. I, you, I know your sins are forgiven, and I want you to know that too. But the second time he says it, he says, I write unto you, little children, because you know you have known the Father. Again, it's, that's a fundamental thing to really keep in our minds. And it is how important it is for young children to get to know their Father, to get to know the Father, in, in practically speaking. Actually, it's one interesting piece of interpretation here is that John uses different words for little children. These are both different Greek words for little children. One of them, the first one is technia, which is more like an infant. The second one is pedia, which is more like a little older child. Fascinating. But as a child grows from his infancy into his, into his development, it's so important for a child to get to know and love his father. Fathers are important in the home. Fathers are dear to a child. And they, as the child grows, especially little boys, they really need a heart united with their dad. John was commending these young believers because they had known the father. They were living in that joy that 
that they were children of God. And God loves me. The Father loves me. Here's what Charles Spurgeon wrote on this, and I'll move on. Little children, when they begin to talk and go to school, how proud they are of their father. Their father is like the greatest man that ever lived. There never was the like of him. You may talk them of great statesmen or great warriors or great princes, but these are all nobodies. Their father fills the whole horizon of their being. Well, so it is certainly with us and our father God. Isn't that true? We just want to talk about him and say how good our father is. He is the greatest. And for those of us that may not have had good fathers, God is our father. What a beautiful thing that that is. Then John addresses fathers themselves. And by that, he, I think, probably is maybe meaning mature believers. And here's what he says. I write unto you fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. And I have written unto you fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. Interesting phrasing there. But both saying the same thing, the same phrase twice. Remember, when you see repetition in the Bible, it's for emphasis. John was commending these mature believers, men and women. It's not just men. He's, he's talking about these mature believers for their knowledge of God, their gnosis of God. This is referring, though, to more than intellectual knowledge. This is referring to experiential knowledge. It wasn't the knowledge that, you know, I have a few biblical truths. I got a few doctrines down. I know a few Bible verses. That's not what he's talking about. This, these are older, mature believers who've been strong in the faith for many years because they know the Father. They have known Him for years. They have prayed. They have wept. They have talked to God. They have related to God. God is their Father. And because of their knowledge of God, these men and women are strong oak trees in the faith. Their roots go deep into the person of Jesus. And you cannot make it, nobody can make it that long and strong in the faith without an experiential knowledge of the Lord. You just can't. Christianity, again, is not about a thing. It's about a person. They must know the Father. They must know Him. Then John speaks to the young men. I write unto you, young men. Uh, These maybe would be the, the workers in the faith. Those Christian workers. Um... Male, female, doesn't matter. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Notice that change in the two different phrases. The young men, they are those worker bees of any age, the busy bees out there serving with vigor, serving Jesus. As one commentator put it, the greatest effort, the greatest cost, and the greatest strength are expected of the young men. You know, if we're going to go out to battle in America, we send our young men. (laughs) We don't get the old guys and we don't get the little babies. We send those young men out there to go get shot. Um, But they're the ones that are on the front lines. And you know, again, this is not about necessarily just physical age here. We're not talking about that. These are people who are busy working for Jesus. And there is a point in our spiritual life where every Christian needs to stop being a little child and enter into the army of Christ. Every single believer. We all need to be frontline workers for Jesus. And it's not easy because they're the ones taking a lot of hits from the enemy. 
So they need to remember this encouraging word here that John gives. The old apostle who's been there, who's been on the front lines, who, who they say was even boiled in oil and, and yet remained alive. He says this, you are strong overcomers. You, are, you have overcome the wicked one. But only because of the word of, that the word of God abideth in you. The only way you remain strong is in the word. The only way you're going to remain strong in the faith is if you have the word of God abiding in you. That's how you'll fight against the wicked one. By the way, notice that it says, in particular, the wicked one. It doesn't say wickedness. Wicked one. It's a, in other words, you are going toe-to-toe with the devil and his demons. You young men are going toe-to-toe with the devil and his demons, which means it's not going to be the same attack each time. It's not just some general thing that comes at you every now and then. No, it's, it's, a, it's an entity. It is a person. The devil is coming after you, and he's going to change his tactics depending on what you put forth. And he's going to watch you. And every day it's a new battle. If something isn't working, he's going to get creative and come up with a different way to get you. He's always thinking of a way to destroy God's people. And the person who decides to get out there, serve the Lord, and be on those front lines for Jesus will face an assault. But let me just say again, again, he's not referring to physical age here. Age should not hinder anybody from serving Jesus with vigor. I wanted to share this with you real quick. There's an email that we got through our website here at the church this past week. And a lady, here's what she wrote. I'm going to read it to you. She says, I'm seeking a new home church since COVID-19, or since COVID-19, I stopped going. I won't say anything disrespectful, but before COVID-19, I was attending a faith church and had a lot of disappointment. I kept going back, same sad situations. I've been seeking different churches. Somehow I came across the home church. I'm single, 65. I feel I don't fit in, in, in anywhere. Everyone now are young in ministry. I just want to wake up on Sunday mornings and be excited to go to church and worship God. I love God, but my candle is not shining anymore. I'm excited to visit your opening day, May 16th, at the worship center. So praise the Lord. We'll be looking out for people like that that are going to be walking through these doors. But, but there are people, my prayer is that anyone of any, any age can come to this place and make a difference whether it's through the home church here doing something officially or it might just be you might find a good the right fit it might take some time or you're just serving the Lord out there doing whatever for the Lord and bringing people whatever we can always serve the Lord somewhere but let me say all of these three groups are necessary the new believers the servers and workers the old mature faithful long-term lovers of God that keep things going in the right spirit and have that, they're the spiritual backbone. Every single one. It makes just the church exciting. And I love how Jesus puts that all together for a healthy church. But Pastor John also knows that, that he needs to give a warning here about another enemy that's always trying to ruin all of that. He's trying to tear down all of that wonderful thing that we, uh, we want to be a part of. And God has set. The enemy he's talking about, he's about to talk about is worldliness. The world is one of the of God's strongest rivals for the human heart. The Gnostics, who remember John has been uh, shooting his barbs out to, they, those Gnostics claimed to be Christians, but they weren't even going to f- worry fighting worldliness. Who cares? It didn't matter to them if, they're, if, the, 
if Christians would get worldly. In their corruption of truth, they basically taught that what we did in the body doesn't affect the spirit. They taught you could love God and live in darkness, live however you want, and it just doesn't have any problem. The two are so separate. But that is corrupt theology. And John loves these people enough to tell them the truth, even if it might be tough to hear. Here's what he says. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So he has a message of warning, and the message very clearly, very simply, it is as plain as it could possibly be, love not the world. Love not the world. The world. The world is what we could define as the system of values of this world that is opposed to God. This is one definition. And in verse 15, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, he, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, everyone loves something or someone. The question here is not, will we love, but what will we love? You either love God or you love the world. Throughout the Bible, we're commanded to love Many things, actually. We're commanded to love God. We're commanded to love each other. We're commanded to love our spouse, etc. But just as importantly, we need to not love some things. God says, love not the world. World is the Greek word cosmos. It's not speaking of the people in the world. Even though in John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world. And the world there is the same Greek word, cosmos. So wait a second. God loves the world, but we're not supposed to love the world? What is he talking about? He's not speaking of that. In that verse, he's speaking in context of the people of the world. God loves the people of the world. So we are supposed to love the people of the world. The folks that we go out, they're not our enemy. They're our mission field. And he's not, and he's here, he's also not talking about the earth itself. He's not saying, love not the earth, although we need to be very careful about that. By the way, real quick, with all the environmentalist talk out there, I think God's people, I just want to just throw this out there. This is for free. God's people are the best environmentalists. Only, hear, hear me, because only a biblically minded person can have the right sized love for the earth. Because see here, we, we appreciate and value the earth. For the right reasons. Um, because the reason is because our Father made it. And everything in this world points to Him. So for us, the earth is attached to a person. Therefore, our love for the earth has more meaning, more depth. It's about a person. So we appreciate and respect and honor and thank the Lord for this beautiful earth. So yes, we need to care for it and not abuse it. Absolutely, because it's something that God made. That's right, but it's because it's attached to a person. And we also know that the earth was given for our use. And that's the balancing truth, of course. Our Father gave it to us to use, but of course not abuse. 
that, anyway, let's move on. But God is not speaking of, the, of people when he says the world here. He's not speaking of the earth. He is saying, simply put, the world is that system of values that is opposed to God. Do not love this system that the world had, their values, that is opposed to God. It takes different forms in each era and each culture. But no matter where you are, there's a world system out there that is opposed to God. And there are values that the people uh, that we live among have that are opposed to God. So John presents these two loves. Love of the world, love of the Father. If you're not in love with one, you're probably in love with the other. If you're not devoted to one, you're devoted to the other. There is no middle ground here. Love the world or love the Father. And sometimes people see this and they think, all right, I don't want to love the world, so I'm going to get out of the world. I'm going to become like a monk. I'm going to go to a cave. And that's not what this says to do. It says love not the world. It doesn't say leave the world. Besides, if you leave the world, you're still going to have problems because you're taking you with you. And Jesus, and Jesus never said to leave the world. Jesus, in fact, he said, Lord, I'm going to, Father, I'm going to leave them here, but you be with them. And don't, just don't love the world. The boat needs to be in the water, but the water should not be in the boat. And that's the idea. But loving not the world can be a huge challenge for Christians because the world's philosophies and the ways of thinking are relentless and so alluring. It takes a very focused and robust daily faith to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That last phrase there is referring really to probably materialism, the things that are in the world, the stuff. Real quick, an example in America. There's a housing frenzy right now. Owning a home is not a bad thing uh, if you can afford it. (laughs) In fact, owning land in America has historically been a very good thing. God's for it. I hope, in fact, I hope everybody in here owns houses, lands, whatever. And you get the chance to do that. The problem is that, to me, what, I've hear, what I hear and sense is that home ownership has become part of a value system of the world. It's a status symbol. Almost like if you, if you get that, you've reached the pinnacle of life. It's a thing of the world is what it is. That's risen to godlike heights. Everyone you talk to at work and your family, the people you haven't seen in a long time, they all want to know what's your home ownership status. And that'll tell me if you've arrived in life, if you're successful. The problem is people don't own houses anymore. Houses own people, and we know that. And where is God in the equation? What about the eternal things? When did Jesus hold up property as the ultimate thing to go after? Again, I hope everybody has it. But, but, but when has that become the ultimate pinnacle of things? Why do we fall into these traps? Why do we fall into these worldly values because of the daily pervasive influence of the world's values constantly? And then without noticing it, we start to fall in love with those values. But God makes it crystal clear. We cannot love the Father and love the world at the same time. Only one master at a time. What is it about the world that's so alluring? John tells us in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. These are the world's values and the average person on the street that you walk by. This is what they're all about right here. 
If you're going to talk to somebody, pretty soon you're going to hear it. You're going to hear lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. And we are so inclined to be the same exact way. Lust of the flesh, the desire to have whatever pleases my body. Eve was tempted in every one of these areas, these three. She saw that the tree was good for food, Genesis tells us. It was something to please her fleshly hunger. Now, God has given man certain desires, hunger, thirst, weariness, so we need sleep, sex. All those are not evil in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, sleeping, or begetting children. (laughs) But there is a part of us that wants those things in excess or outside of the parameters that God has set. Hunger is not evil, but gluttony is sinful. Thirst is not evil, but drunkenness is sin. Sleep is a gift of God, but laziness is horrible and shameful. Sex is God's precious gift when used rightly, but when used wrongly, it brings all kinds of destruction. It becomes immorality. There are so many desires that our body has. And taking them outside of the confines of what God says brings us into this area of loving the world. My, the lust of the flesh has gotten me into, the, me into trouble, and I don't have time to tell you that story. So that's good. I'm glad. I don't have to fess up on myself. But I do want to say this. You know, I'll tell on other people. We all know the incredible sad stories of all the famous Christians out there, national news that get caught up in the lust of the flesh. There, by the grace of God, go all of we. <laughs> Several recently that have been very, very sad. But what happened to those folks? The lust of the flesh happened. They started to love the world and the things that are in the world. A desire that got so mangled and twisted and perverted that they just kept moving closer and closer. Like Lot, who kept moving closer and closer to Sodom and then just moved right in. But no Christian can say they weren't warned. John's making it very clear here. But keep remembering, the world cannot produce what it offers. The world will never produce what it offers. Only heartbreak and misery on the other, are on the other side of the world's values. And the lust of the eyes, the desire to have whatever pleases my mind. Eve was drawn and she said it was, the Bible says it was pleasant to her eyes. The eyes are the gateway to the mind. The Greeks and the Romans, they lived for entertainments and activities that excited the mind, excited the eyes. This is looking at something or, or reading something or being involved in something just, so the, just for the pleasure of the mind. You know, you, times have not changed that much. Those Greeks and Romans love that entertainment. And things are the same way. Looking at, if you look at pornography stats these days, you have to agree. The lust of the eyes is a real thing. But it's also anything that excites the mind. Art, fashion, entertainment, hobbies, etc., etc. Achan in the Bible was drawn away by a beautiful Babylonish garment, it says. There's something that excited his eyes. The lust of the eyes, though, I also want to add this, can include intellectual pursuits. Think about this. Some really enjoy learning and increasing in learning. But as we increase in learning and gathering information, we can start to crowd out God as we're researching things that excite our mind and get us excited on things. Or we spend time immersed in reading articles and arguments from this side and the other side, and God's just a million miles away. We cannot love the world and love the Father. Worldliness also includes the pride of life, the desire to appear better than others. Eve was tempted, it says, because it was 
The fruit was desirable to make one wise. The Greek word for pride is, is used to describe a braggart who is always trying to impress people with his importance. This is that desire to have houses and cars and stuff that shows how successful I am. We want everybody to know the heights that we've achieved and we plaster ourselves all over the internet to show our good side. You know, again, the average person you meet is about one or all of these things, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Everybody we meet, this is the pull from all of us. It doesn't matter. We're all in the same boat here. (laughs) And that is what they live their life by. That is their code. Do whatever pleases my mind. Do whatever pleases my body. Do whatever makes me look better than the the next guy. And all the devastation in life and the sins that we fight against each day come back to those three things. And as a Christian, we'll begin to feel, you begin to feel feel it when the love for God has started to uh, pass away and these kind of things start to take over. The Bible becomes boring. Church becomes a chore. Our Christian joy starts to vanish away. And we, we can, those are some signs. I'm starting to love the world a little too much. But remember, this does not happen overnight. This love for the world, it starts slowly and a little over time and the world chipping away at us. So that's why we have to keep cultivating a genuine, persevering love for Jesus. And every single day, just keep going back to Him and relating to Him through His Word. I, and we need to keep this next verse on the forefront of our mind as we end here. The last verse, verse 17. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This is a message of logic. (laughs) Sin doesn't make sense. It's stupid. In other words, the most illogical thing would be to give all of your love to something that doesn't last. Something that doesn't last. The world passeth away. You're going to love something that passes away very soon. Why spend your life on something temporary like the world and lust? Someone has said that loving the world is like getting into a sinking ship. How long? I was thinking, how long would it take to line up every person in the home church? You, you folks here and many others. And one by one to stand up and give the same general testimony. I was trapped in sin. I was trapped by the world. I was in love with the world. And the world left me empty and broken. But Jesus came in and changed everything. I mean, there would be countless, we would sit here all day and then some and then some and days and days for everybody to tell their story, that same story. The world is temporary, but the person who is walking with the Lord, loving the Lord, doing His will is a person that abides forever. That's the stuff that really lasts. I just want to remind all of us this morning, really, is just to guard against foolish and harmful worldly lusts. And just instead keep focusing on Jesus and the things that God has given us that are eternal and that eternal home. Father, we thank you.